From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you with the full crew. Audie Weiner is here. Eric Bradle is here. Shane Jensen is here. This is Cade Massey coming to you on Zoom as we have been since pandemic hit March 2020, mostly not in the studio this week. Every now and then we sneak back into the studio. We are talking on Monday afternoon. We're usually a Tuesday afternoon recording operation. Two weeks in a row now, we're sliding in a little bit early to accommodate schedules. The show will go up Wednesday morning on SiriusXM, be replayed a couple times, and then we'll get the podcast up on Wednesday morning as well. We have a couple of interviews this week. As usual, we're going to do them in Qs 2 and 3. In Q2, we're talking to Ryan O'Hanlon, Ryan O'Hanlon, ESPN writer, author, a couple of soccer issues we wanted to grab. He's got some pieces up, interesting contemporary topics you guys will be interested in. And then in the second interview segment, Q3, Brian Dockstater. Brian is one of the co-founders of a interesting little uh, investment app situation that we think we're going to be hearing more about. So we thought we'd grab Brian. Those are our interviews in Qs 2 and 3. Qs 1 and 4, open topics. Guys, good afternoon to you. Very curious. I think I know probably what's top of mind. But the thing is, there's so much going on right now, we could go a few different directions. What are y'all thinking about this afternoon? What's caught your eye in the world of sports? Actually, maybe we'll just spend 30 seconds on something that caught my eye. It wasn't anything. It's in the rundown, but it's something different, which is, you know, I was I was watching the Triple Crown race just quickly, and there will be no Triple Crown winner again this year. Preakness, the National Treasure won the Preakness. Uh, Mage, I think it's pronounced, won the Derby. But what caught my eye again was, so it's now 50 years, 5-0, since Secretariat ran. Secretariat still has, with all the great training, science, analytics that we have, Secretariat still has the record at all three major racetracks. And just to give you guys an example, the horse, I also I just looked this up, the horse that won the Preakness this year, assuming they ran the same times, would have lost by about 11 or 12 lengths to Secretariat. So it lost by over two seconds and one second's about four and a half to five lengths. So to me, um, it just struck my eye from an analytics perspective. How is it possible that 50, 50 years later, one single horse still has the record at all three of these tracks? So to me, that that's what caught my eye just about the extremeness of this. It's been a hundred and, you know, whatever, let's say 10 horses per race, 30 horses a year times 50 years, 1,500 opportunities to break Secretariat's record and not one so far, not at any of the tracks, none. So Eric, I'm, it makes me wonder about the evolution of racing times and horses over over that period of time and the previous, whatever, 100 years, because is it is it simply the case that there have been people breeding and trading horses for racing for hundreds of years and we just got there. We're already there and we've been there for a while and we might be able to add on the margin, but more or less they figured this thing out and have figured it out for a while. And so and now it's just, you know, random variation, essentially. And Secretariat gave us an extreme positive. This is why, yeah, this I mean, is, it, sorry, go ahead, Shane. I was just going to say, it'd be like tracking the whole distribution as opposed to just the max, right? 
Yeah, but it's also something else that if things are purely at their maximum and purely stationary, then why not 1973 as opposed to 2023? It has to be sometime. I just have to think, though, that the analytics of training has to be better than it was 50 years ago. I just have to think. Well, well, one, you're you're biased because that's your world. We all are. And the two, the, 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 the obvious rejoinder is, what's the margin versus these other factors? And yeah. maybe the other factors are bigger and they've evolved to this plateau. Adi's been trying to jump yeah. in for a minute. I'm going to throw in two, two things. First of all, it's pretty clear to us after listening to Jeff Cedar all these years, that basically there's no analytics in, in horse racing and certainly horse training. It's just not done. I mean, it's not happening really in soccer. Why would you expect it necessarily to have happened? It, it's happening in soccer. Don't overstate what Ryan is going to say in the next interview. It's happening in soccer. It's just uh, it's the ad- adoption is slow. But there really has been. But the second thing, and this is the thing that I think is potentially worthy of some data and collect, collection. Horse racing was enormous in this around the world when horses were the major form of transportation. And it took a long time before horse racing was just a much smaller sport. I would argue that in the last 50 years, the, just the amount of effort and energy and money, while still a big sport, is, is probably substantially less than it was for the 100 years prior to 1973. And that would be just a conjecture, since I have absolutely no data. Uh-huh. Interesting. Well, um, I'm, going with Cade's, I'm going with Cade's effect size story. It's no, at I the mean, margin, but... Uh... What makes me think about like, you know, we had a guest a few uh, weeks ago on talking about how baseball, when you compare it to like yesteryear, you have to be careful. You're talking about kind of like you take account the selection bias of the pool of yeah. available kind of players out there. Could it be that as horse racing's gone down, like the number of horses, per, you know, in, like the number <laughs> of horses used for what's the, you know, is the actual pool of horses potential yeah. for racing actually uh, I, go, going up well, over time but, like it is but, like but it's on, not, the, not not like the human population but on the other hand if you want to take the other side of it you and this is a bunch of people who know nothing about horse racing conjecture about horse yeah. racing. <laughs> <laughs> be careful but i'm guessing that there is much more international travel of horses than there used to be i'm guessing there's more matching of the best talent from around the world to the highest stakes races than there ever was before. And you might think that that would lead to increased performance. It may be surprising. Maybe you that's know, one of the more surprising. Bits. Anyway, and we haven't you, actually ruled out increased performance over time, just not at the very max. It's very interesting. That's right. That's right. One other thing is that these the triple crown races, very, these horses are young and uh, horses get much faster as they get older. Uh, I think they peak out at between four and five years old. As a that's correct. Yeah, and yep. so um, you—it's hard to know whether this is something that is more is, that the scientific side has that much to contribute, other than just the, you know you get luck into something here. Um, Adi, you're saying you're saying that maybe training has gotten better, but the impact of training isn't felt until they're a little further developed. Yeah, this is, and that's really just a luck game. Okay. So you that's, wander that's into the, the specimen that the specimen that this a horse like Secretariat was. Okay. Yeah, it could very well be Secretariat was four or five sigma out. As Shane said, the mean of the distribution's gone up one to two sigma. It's just still Secretariat so far out of the distribution. But wait, what you said, Ken, I have to respond to it in a positive way. This is what you just pointed out, why my life as an academic is so wonderful. I can opine on so many topics I know nothing about. Fields, I have appointments. I have appointments in fields I know nothing really about, except 
I'm a statistician. I can come up with statistical conjectures for phenomenon. That's you've just pointed out why Wharton Moneyball is so much fun and our lives are so much fun. Well, but you have to pair that with the humility that says we need domain expertise to build really good models. We have to blend statistical sophistication with domain experts. Um, why don't we jump into a domain we know a little bit more about? Brooks Kepka wins his fifth major over the weekend. And it's been a couple of years. He's been through a major injury. Um, when he was on a roll, we were all astounded by his ability to kind of knock around on or not play him at all regular tournaments and then drop into these majors and be very competitive and win a bunch of them. He might be picking back up into that pace. It's pretty extraordinary. Fifth major, there are a, a number of guys have won five, but it's getting into pretty rare company. And for example, Sevi Ballesteros was at a five. Um, and I don't, I haven't said, I'd like to see the numbers of majors as a fraction of tournament wins because he oh, must he's, he's taking the, the meter on that one. Any other yeah. reactions to Kepka's win over the weekend? Well, I mean, I thought he was impressive. He looked like the old Kepka. Um, five major wins puts you in a very elite category. I mean, since the basically since the end of let's call it the Tom Watson era, which would have ended like in the 80s. Um, so I've been two golfers that have won more than five majors, and that's Tiger Woods with 15 and Phil Mickelson with six. That's it. And so there's nobody, none. Roy McElroy, the great Roy McElroy, has four and has not won one in nine years. Jordan Spieth has three. We can name lots of other golfers, but now Brooks Kepka is the best golfer outside of Woods and Mickelson in terms of majors over the last 30 years. He is. He's better than he's got a better record now than McElroy. He's more recent. Um, and let's remember, he, he will root to this day if he never wins one. He was leading by two going into the final round of the Masters this year. And the year that Tiger Woods was a 2019 won the Masters, uh, Brooks Koepke ended up one shot back. So he may end up, you know, with seven or eight majors and end up a couple of a bunch of seconds in the Masters. And trust me, he even said it in his interview. He would trade one for the Masters right now. Well, he, he's still young is one of the amazing things about seeing what he's doing. Well, yes and no. A lot of potential in front of him. Just so you know, I mean, this isn't a long streak and it's not a huge streak, but he did break the streak of seven straight majors being won by people under the age of 30. Yeah. Yeah. But he's barely over 30, right? Like 33. 30, 33. Oh, I thought he was 31. Okay. So he's, but he's still got, and he's, a, he, you know, golfers are staying competitive longer these days. Um and they're but, somehow staying competitive, even after, I, I guess the claim was that they would go to the live tour and completely forget about how to play golf or something. I that's guess that's correct. Was, that was at least the hope on the PGA's part is that just, you know, somehow that new different term formatted different courses would just, you know, these guys would be terrible in the majors. And obviously that hasn't happened. Well, here's well, what you could argue, Shane. Is this the only argument I could see that's legitimate, not the ones that you just said, which we both agree are illegitimate arguments would be. If you don't play against the best competition, maybe when you do play against the best competition, you can't perform as yeah. well. And that would be the only argument. And by the way, it's not that there aren't. This was this was Brooks Kepka's point. Yeah. It's not that there aren't top golfers in live golf, but there's not 50 of them. And so, okay, but that doesn't mean the five or six that are actually in the top 20 have forgotten how to play. And trust me, when you know, golf is not that kind of sport in the sense that. You know, in my view, it, you know, and by the way, Shane, as time goes on, we'll collect more and more data about this. We'll call it competition effect. Does the lack of, of dense, thick competition actually affect performance in golf tournaments? 
and we'll find out. I, the other thing I hope that we find out over time with more data is whether Kepka is an example of some whatever. What's the opposite of choking? We we question whether choking exists. Oh, kind of like kind of clutch, like coming clutch. through only in yeah, the clutch, so, like at a greater rate in the bigger moments. Yeah, I mean, he seems. I mean, he keeps on doing it. We've been asking yeah. him for a couple of years now, but at some point, maybe we can show that he is actually clutch. It would be neat because we. I don't think we've seen somebody do what he's done in majors relative to. His other performance. Well, by the way, assuming this is updated, I, I think this is. He only has nine PA PG wins, of which five are majors. It's absolutely unbelievable. So we, need, I'd like to see that for the other guys, but that's pretty extraordinary. All right, we're seeing some extraordinary stuff happen in the NBA playoffs as well. We'll collect NHL and baseball in Q4, but we have to talk about basketball. The, after the Nuggets have done what they did to the Lakers, and it's been kind of ugly. We saw Miami continue doing the same thing to the Celtics last night was even like this. The most extreme of the six conference finals games that we've seen was last night where they just embarrassed the Celtics. And at this point, this, the stat that everyone has heard is no NBA team has ever come back from a 3 nothing series deficit. And so it seems like we're set on the way for Nuggets and Heat. But any reactions to the Heat dismantling of the Celtics? Well, go ahead, Eric. No, I, the only reaction I was going to have is, first of all, the status everyone has seen is zero and 149. And the second thing I'll just say quickly is, after the Heat beat the Bucks, the number one seed in the East, four games to one, I don't know why anyone is that surprised. I'm surprised they're up 3 nothing, but I'm not surprised that they're at least competitive with anybody. They beat the number one seed, the Bucks. Yeah, I mean, as from a casual fan, I feel like the lack of competitiveness in general in the conference finals relative to what had happened before kind of came as a shock to the system. Yeah. Right. Right. But, uh, right. Right. But yeah, I, I think I'm surprised by this. I mean, this is uh, I like to roll back to pre, not only preseason, obviously pre playoff kind of odds. And this is still shocking to a degree three to nothing. <laughs> Heat. I mean, yeah. I want to ask a question about the Denver and the, and, and the uh, West. Can, can we, can we not do that quite yet? To, to stay on the I mean, well, okay. Sure. If you have more to say about the heat. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I'm mostly with Audi because I think no, nobody, but in we as well. I mean, there were statements made on this show about how definitively it was going to be the Bucks or how definitively it'd be the Bucks and Celtics. And now we're like, we keep on yeah. losing these definitives and we're we're left with a team, as has been reported ad nauseum with a bunch of undrafted players. You've got Butler, who's extraordinary. You've got Bam, who's extraordinary, but they're doing it in other ways. And I think you, I mean, you have to sit back and ask what else is going on. What, what of these immeasurable intangibles is actually adding up to something here? People talk about the heat culture and it's extraordinary. If it's, if it's true, it's extraordinary because it's been through generations, but do you start giving Riley credit as the team president? Do you, how much credit do you give Spolstra as the coach? Maybe there is, I don't know, but is there something to these kinds of things yeah. when you get the level of performance they get from an unheralded team like this? Is there? I, I, I can't speak for the organization and how it influences over the generations and over dynasties. But if you're going to start going back to the Pat Riley Miami Heat days, that was that was the opposite of this type of team, right? That was, you know, this is the unheralded Miami Heat. You know, the Pat Riley Miami Heat were the heralded. I mean, that was, that was like one of the first kind of super teams we saw kind of come through here. So I, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, but he, they're, but they're he, both the same franchise. I don't, I, I mean, I feel like as far as team building, it's almost the opposite extremes in terms of strategy, right? 
that's a fair point. And I don't know enough about the Riley impact, but I've always heard people give him a lot of credit for what the heat is. Oh yeah. No. And maybe I misunderstood you were talking more about coaching than the actual roster construction. No, I just, I'm curious. I mean, front, we know in the sports that we know better and more intimately, we know how much the front office matters and we know how much ownership matters. And when people, people do talk about the heat culture, I think it's a fair question, especially when you see the contributions come from as broad as they are coming in this team. Yeah, I'll just, just in five seconds, I'll say, if you look at the Miami Heat construction, they've got one, let's call him great player in Jimmy Butler. They've got a strong defensive, off, semi-offensive center in Bam Adebayo, and then seven other guys that you just cannot leave open at any time from the three-point range. And maybe that's the future, which is, you know, just a bunch of guys can't leave anybody open. We'll go eight or nine deep and we can play. It's, it's an interesting model. I, I'm surprised it's working as effectively as it is. I mean, I guess you have to be careful and not jump on any stories because these stories start spinning out when a team does well. You know, there's like there's a lot of there's a lot of good harmony and, and culture type um, narratives when a team is successful. But I tell you, know, if they make the finals get creamed by the Nuggets, this narrative will probably count. Just yeah, that's right. Away. That's right. That's right. But if they take down yet again a supposedly yep. more talented roster, that I mean, at some point you've yep. got to ask some questions. And I just I think it's kind of interesting that it goes beyond merely Butler because Butler's extraordinary. It's maybe especially in the playoffs. Maybe we have another clutch example. Um, but you know, at some point, if they went enough of these series unexpectedly against more talented rosters, at some point you have to ask, what are the broader factors? At least investigate the question. Um, we're out of time. We we're going to do a disservice to the Nuggets and um, what they're doing to the Lakers. But man, it, you know, I wouldn't have known we were excited about Nuggets heat. But in the last week or two, I'm kind of excited about Nuggets heat if we get to see it because that team has been looking pretty good. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. We have an open line segment in Q4, so stick around. We have a couple of interviews coming up in Q2 and Q3. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now. We have the whole team here. Shane Jensen's here. Audie Winers here. Eric Bradlow is here. And this is Cade Massey coming to you as we usually do via Zoom. You guys can jump in here, jump into the conversation via Twitter or email. Our Twitter account is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. And we love to hear from you guys. We get ideas from y'all. Feedback, obviously, very helpful. Give us a shout on Twitter. You could also drop us an email. It's our mailbag of sorts. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We get lots of comments and suggestions, criticism, praise, the full range, and we enjoy getting the full range. Let us know what you think. We read everything you send, and we get as much of it as possible on the air. All right, rolling into Q2, one of our interview segments. We do interviews usually in the middle two segments. And we do, in fact, again this week, have a guest in Q2. Ryan O'Hanlon is here. Ryan talked with us, I don't know, probably in the World Cup last fall. We, we were kind of on a World Cup primer. We put ourselves through an every week soccer guest, and Ryan was one of those. We were also reading his book last year, which was great fun. 
Um, we'll talk about that briefly, but first let's say hello and welcome back to Ryan. Thanks for having me back. I uh, feel like last time we talked for like almost your entire show. So <laughs> could be, it could be, it doesn't happen very often, but every now and then we're like, oh heck, let's just keep going. Um, and I think that was one of those occasions. Ryan is a staff writer at ESPN. Um, his book, which we really do recommend, is called Net, Net Gains, Net Gains, Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution, Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. And it's a pleasure. It's um, insightful about soccer generally, insightful about soccer analytics, and it's a good story. Lots of good stories in there. It's a pleasure to read. So we really can recommend that. And then, Ryan, your work at ESPN, you're, you had an article recently about an exciting, exciting development in U.S. soccer. Um, long, you know, long, frustrating, long, lamenting, long, long waiting for it to blossom U.S. soccer. And we've got, in some ways, more substantive meat to get into. But let's start with that because it is such a fun story and it's a high-profile story. And I suspect it's something that U.S. soccer community and the casual fans, not unlike ourselves, we'll be talking about for some time. So can you, what can you tell us about this kid who just got approved, authorized, I'm not sure it's certified to play, or he made his decision to play for the U.S. What can you tell us about this guy and why are we so excited about it? Yeah, so I, I think that there's a long, uh, there's a long history of guys with eligibility to play for the U.S., but also eligibility to play for other typically better uh, soccer nations, like let's say Germany, France. Um, and historically, those guys that have played for the U.S. have been ones that weren't good enough to play for for France or for Germany. Um, U.S. kind of guaranteed playing time for them. And a lot of the time, um, they ended up disappointing, right? Because you, you hear of this guy that you know plays in the Bundesliga and has a couple caps for Germany at the youth level, and he plays for the U.S., and you kind of understand why he, why he couldn't play for Germany, right? Um, but Balogun, I think, is different because I think so he could have played for England or for Nigeria. Um, those are the two other countries he was available for. And I think he's good enough to play for England or for Nigeria. He just happened, those just happen to be two of the countries where there's a uh, sort of traditional center forward guy, guy that mainly scores goals and everything else is secondary. Harry Kane plays for England. He's one of the five best center forwards in the world. And then it just happen so happens that Victor Osimhen, this Napoli player, plays for Nigeria, and he's also one of the five best center forwards in the world. Wow. And center okay. forward, it's not a, uh, you know, you, the, those guys are so important to their teams that there's not much room to kind of cycle in for a center forward in the way that there maybe is for a center midfielder or a winger kind of to get playing time on the margin. So because of that, the U.S. had this opportunity to get this player who, um, you know, by all the underlying statistical measures we talked about last time I was on, he's he stacks up pretty well to a lot of the best players in the world this season in in France. Well, this is what was stunning. You you walk through you, this. I mean, we we enjoy you as a writer, as a soccer commentator, but also you're analytics friendly, analytics interested, analytics savvy. And so, in your piece for ESPN last week, you walk through kind of early projections on this guy. So he's young. How you have nineteen or something like that? Do I have that right? Is he that young? Um, uh, I believe he's 21. 21. So not not that young, but so still quite young. And you're projecting him, and so you're comparing him to stats from some of the great players in the history that he came at this stage of his career. And you end up saying, you know, this guy, this guy could be 
really special based on what he's doing so far. So what is what is a number or two that leads us to that conclusion or at least that projection? Yeah, so the, the kind of basic like attacking stats that are more predictive than just goals or assists, which tend to be pretty noisy for a couple of reasons. You know, guy can get hot for a season and convert his chances really well with assists. Um, the guy on the end of the chances could be just having a good season finishing them, and that kind of boosts your assist numbers. So there's expected goals and expected assists, which which I think you guys have talked about on the show before. Just kind of putting a rough probability on the chance chance that the chance gets converted into a goal and you kind of award the player for creating the pass that does that or taking the shot and over time that that tends to be more predictive of how players will perform and if you just kind of add up non-penalty expected goals and expected assists for Balogun players ahead of him are Kylian Mbappe who everyone uh, knows from the hat trick of the World Cup final Erling Haaland who just broke the Premier League goal scoring record in his first season in the Premier League little-known guy called Lionel Messi, who I don't think many people will have heard of. And then Robert Lewandowski, Mohamed Salah, Bruno Fernandez, Antoine Griezmann, who are guys that maybe you guys aren't as familiar with, but they're all superstars in their own right. And then you have Balogun after him. That's incredible. That's an incredible list. And to think the U.S. had, I mean, the U.S. has never, it's fair to say the U.S. has never had a talent that that exciting, right? We've had some, we've had some players who've been at the at the international level, but not quite that. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Um, Christian Pulisic was performing at a pretty high, he was doing the kind of, you know, you have this thing with young players where just young players getting minutes in soccer is very predictive of future success, regardless of how they perform at a young age. And right. Pulisic at a young age in the Premier League, uh, was performing at a high high level. So he was kind of doing both. Um, uh-huh. But he's never, I mean, he was fantastic in the World Cup, actually. The U.S. got pretty much, I think, close to like the hundredth percentile outcome for his performance and health. Okay. Um, but he hasn't managed to stay healthy. So yeah, in terms of just like pure kind of sustainable seeming production, there's never been a season like this by an American player in the Premier League, other than maybe one Queen Dempsey season. Okay. Okay. We had a, sorry, uh, we had a, Ryan, we had a guest on last week talking about kind of how how many seasons or how much how many games you'd have to watch of a particular or data you'd have to have on a particular player to kind of really discern that they have, you know, an above average among this elite company kind of ability to convert scoring chances or something like that. And at least for hockey, his conclusion was it's like one or two seasons worth of performance has to be observed before we really can kind of you know, necessarily say this person really is like a great finisher relative to other people, et cetera. For soccer, you know, what, 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 what's the compare, what's the comparable length of time do you think? And does youth time, like time, does teen, you know, time before it's, you know, the kind of the major leagues of soccer count equally, like, you know, like how many professional seasons would you have to see? How many amateur seasons would you have to see? Yeah, I think like, I think there would be some, um, analysts that would tell you you'll never officially know by the time a player's career ends if he's if he's a good finisher or reliable above average finisher like the only like guy that i feel like i guess there's like three maybe four players that i would feel confident in saying the next season this person plays he's going to score more goals than expected and that would be messi who's like 25 percent above his expected goals for his career which is uh, like far and away the best. Then there's Harry Kane, Sun Hyung Min, who plays for Tottenham, who's kind of this amazing two-footed finisher. And then there's Antoine Griezmann, who I 
mentioned earlier. Um, but even Messi last year had an under, he underperformed his expected goals all of a sudden um, after, you know, all of this data suggesting that he's the greatest finisher of all time, basically. So I think, I guess my cop-out answer would be like, I think significantly longer than hockey you would need to answer it. And I think Balogun, Balogun's slightly below his expected goals for this season. Um, so he could have even more, I think. Um, than his kind of just raw, raw goals number. And I think if he was doing that, I think he'd, there'd be even more excitement about him. Man, that observation that you might not know when a guy finishes uh, his career, that, that's, that's almost an existential statement about analytics. I mean, that, that goes to the heart of why analytics people versus traditional guys are like, the traditional guys are like, what the hell are y'all doing? It's like, this career is over and you can't tell me whether you think he's good or not. It's like, what? I mean, I don't care. He scored whatever. So some guys are trying to jump in um, and we're going to, Adi's dying here. God knows where this is going to go based on the chat, Adi. Who knows? Uh, I'll, I'll postpone that. Um, so Ryan, I, I, I just finished your book and what Kate is talking about is almost the theme of the book. And I'm going to, is that you kept talking about all these statistics to analyze soccer players, but then you turn around and go, well, well, maybe not. <laughs> you know, we, we do our best here, but at the end of the day, there's so much noise here. It's hard to really know what, we, what we've got. And that actually, that humility was really a really nice part of the book. You didn't try to overstretch what we can say using the data. Um, yet, you, yet, yet you continually talked throughout the book, and we, we think about a player like this, somehow people know who the good players are, because the teams that spend a lot of money get a lot of wins. And um, actually, I had a, I had a, a student in, in one of my summer classes who predicted World Cup victories just by adding up their salaries based on whatever team they were on. And he found that that was an amazingly good predictor of how well you do. Um, of course, there's lots of confounders and stuff. Um, but you, right away, you know, when a, a team that just doesn't have internationally high good players is not going to do very well. And so, um, and so that's what, what I think is really important and interesting about Cade's comment. And we talk about trying to evaluate a player. It's soccer is just so far away from getting statistics that can really do that. Um, so that was really just, I guess I'd like you to comment on that a little bit when it comes to this particular player. But in the chat, we were, we were talking with each other. I wanted to make everybody clear. Um, I wasn't sure. He's, it, it is, there's no real reflection that this is an indication that American soccer is becoming now great, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you could maybe make the argument that he wouldn't have wanted to play for the U.S. Um, if the team was worse. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's a, been a, you know, with the national team, it's like you are in a lot of ways, it's restricted to the players that are just happen to be born in the country that your federation represents. But the U.S. and some of the other countries have this kind of added thing where it's kind of like college football recruiting, where you can kind of recruit these players that have this eligibility for whatever this reason to play for you. So I think there's, a. I would give, I think it's a, you know, it's U.S. soccer hasn't produced Belligan in any way. He's a uh, grew up in England um, and an Arsenal product. Um, but I think the U.S. convincing him to play for the team, I think suggests that the countries, at least the federations on something of a good path and they convince them without having a coach, which is also interesting. But yeah, I, th I think what you said, the more I've kind of done this work, you know, I'm a, kind of a writer, journalist first, and then an analyst second, I would say. Um, but as I wrote my book and have done this work more, I feel like the more I'm learning and the more I'm seeing people try, smart people who haven't worked on soccer before try to study soccer, 
like I just feel way less confident in everything I think and <laughs> say about soccer, um, despite there being almost more information available about it than ever before. That's a that's amazing, and Adi's so right that that's a theme in the book, and maybe that's one of the reasons that we like it so much. Is because I think that's the only reasonable position to have, kind of in life. You know, you'd be surprised yeah. how many people. There's some of the best scientists in the world would say the same thing. You know, it's like we 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 learn to cultivate this skepticism and acknowledging our uncertainty. That's really the beginning of wisdom. Yeah, Ryan, can you give us a sense of how much analytics has or on this topic has you know? infiltrated if you'd like the teams like do they understand the concept that this player may have a higher expected goals than this one but it's not statistically different do they have a sense of you know you could rank order players but there's uncertainty in the ranks do they have a sense of like more in a business school setting like roi like there's a certain expected number of goals per dollar spent can you tell us how much these concepts have kind of made their way in yeah, I would say it's way behind all of the the major, uh, you know, the big four: NHL, MLB, NBA, and NFL. Um, I, I think in my book, people have compared it to baseball, like maybe baseball, like around the Billy Bean A's era, maybe like a little bit after, kind of the sport started to catch on. And I guess what you had the you had Cleveland starting to dig into it a little bit, but I think for the most part, it's every team has analysts now that can come on your show and have a really interesting conversation about the stuff we're talking about, but the number of teams that like empower these people and actually listen to them and have this kind of uncertainty uh, awareness in all of their decisions, I would say is very, very, very small still. Um, it's, it's, um, it just really doesn't drive or play much of a role. I don't think in decision-making for most teams other than a handful. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how different that is from some of the major North American sports football. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> one, the distinction you drew is the key distinction. That is, this: are they listening to them or not? It's one thing to hire them and have them in the building. It's another for them to make a difference. Um, but here's a, a way around that. Why not just spend more money than you're legally allowed to, and then the analytics don't matter? You know, just stock the team <laughs> with money from some Middle Eastern country, and then just don't worry about what the numbers say. You're pretty sure you got the numbers on your side. So let's talk Man City. This is the, your your current um, focus, Ryan. They just came through the Premier League. They just won their third in a row. Five of the last six Premier League titles. They're heavy favorites to win Champions League. You might remind us what the FA Cup is because apparently winning all three of these things is a big deal. And then let's talk about Man City because, as you point out, they have over 100 charges of financial misconduct. So we're seeing this kind of all-time team, but in parallel, we're seeing, well, they're probably not playing by the rules. Yeah, so they've won five of six titles, and I think it's important to point out that before that, the Premier League was essentially the paragon of uh, parity in European soccer. You had Bayern Munich winning the Bundesliga year after year. Real Madrid and Barcelona win La Liga. Essentially, they traded back and forth. Um Italy, Juventus went on a 10-year streak of winning and PSG uh, dominated Liga. So Manchester City did that right as kind of the Premier League kind of skyrocketed in terms of the amount of money that all the teams make. So they won five or six titles when theoretically the Premier League should be more competitive than ever before based on the resources available to all the teams. Um, but so I, in soccer, there's this thing called financial fair play, which is instituted kind of... Um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, it was had sort of a dual purpose, depending on who you ask. 
one thing that happens in soccer a lot, these owners would buy lower level teams and then they could spend a lot of money and they were able to transfer the debt onto the team. So they could spend a lot of money, transfer the debt onto the team and then leave and the team would just be screwed basically. And they would plummet down the tables and cease to exist. So if financial fair play is like a vague cap on how much you can spend based on the revenue you, you bring in. There's a rough guideline if you can spend a little more than you bring in, but it's not like it's not like MLB where I imagine in the league office, if you try to spend more than you're allowed, an alarm goes off or something like that. It's You kind of do it, you do your accounting, and then after the fact, UEFA or the league comes in and kind of audits your books. Um, hey, Ryan, real quick, added- just for, to, to, to deepen our understanding of the sport, um, what's an example of a club where this debt thing happened? What's, what's the most famous example of a club that got saddled with debt and therefore really slid down after the ownership changed? Uh, I think Portsmouth would probably be a good example who was, were kind of ever present in the Premier League, um, you know, 10, 10 plus years ago. And now you basically never, never hear about them anymore. Um, oh, but it, it's almost more so in the lower leagues where I think I owners would kind of take a shot on a cheap team, try to spend their way up and then kind of just get bored. But so the okay. knock on effect of this was at the same time, this happened right as Roman Abramovich, uh, former Chelsea owner, Russian oligarch kind of bought Chelsea and spent. Turned Chelsea into a superpower by spending a ton of money. Uh, Utter bought PSG and the Abu Dhabi royal family bought Manchester City. So the added knock-on effect of this was that suddenly those teams couldn't just spend unlimited money. They could spend whatever their quote-unquote revenues were. So kind of a lot of people viewed financial fair play as a thing to sort of make European soccer healthier as a whole, which it did. Um, Teams kind of don't go bust in the way they used to. But it also was like of a benefit for teams like Manchester United and Liverpool and Barcelona, these established legacy teams with huge commercial revenues right. that um, work. If you have financial fair play, all of a sudden their spending power raises. They don't have to try to find ways to spend beyond their means in the way that these, um, let's call them Petro funded clubs did. So that's kind of like the landscape of all this happening. Um, and essentially, Manchester City are being investigated by the Premier League for kind of doing three things. One, in, uh, inflating sponsorships. So they're sponsors, sponsored by Etihad Airways, which is also owned by the Abu Dhabi royal family. So you kind of get into the question of what's fair value for that sponsorship, <laughs> right? right. Um, and then two, they basically found ways to, I should say, allegedly found ways to pay coaches and players off the books. Their former manager, Roberto Mancini, supposedly they paid him, you know, a couple upwards of $10 million extra to coach a team in Qatar, which ended up just being, he would show up in Qatar for, or not Qatar, sorry, Abu Dhabi. Uh, don't want to confuse those two. Um, he'd show up for four days a year and they'd give him an extra um, yeah. yep. $10 million. And that's off of Manchester City's books. So it doesn't apply to the financial fair play calculation. So yep. that's what essentially they're being investigated for, um, basically fi- finding ways to spend more um, than the financial fair play rules allow. Ryan, what do you think it translates into into additional rel- in, additional in terms of relative spending power or in terms of players? Like, what 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 would be the difference if these guys were properly following the rules? Roughly, it's tough. It's tough to know because obviously I don't know. There's no way almost to know exactly kind of how much more they're spending. But so uh, John Byrne Murdoch from the Financial Times, um, 
who did a lot of work on COVID actually and kind of became really popular on Twitter with a lot of his graphs. He did a piece on Manchester City kind of controlling for wage. Basically, you can predict, roughly predict performance based on wages. And he found that um, her season with Pep Guardiola, Manchester City's new coach, Manchester City are winning 15 more points per season than their wages. They're like published wages success suggests. And I think the next best was six um, over that amount of time. So I think somewhere in there, uh, you can kind of figure wow. out um, so the published figures that are exceeding by 15 points a season, essentially. How, how accurate are the public figures, I think, then is the question to kind of figure out their sort of sporting excellence versus what they're basically brute force spending is, is creating. Right. Because we might, if, if everyone was playing by the same rules, we might attribute that outperformance to, you know, good deployment, good coaching, good development, that, yeah. that kind of stuff. And you're yeah. saying, but then you maybe, also get into the question of they have the best coach in the world um, possibly because they spend so much money and that allows them to deploy their players in a, in a more efficient way. Okay, so why don't we why don't we transition and, and move from the financial shenanigans that those guys though it really does color everything, um, but let's think about them as just a soccer team because they seem to be pretty extraordinary in that respect. By what measure would you say they are? How would you compare them to other great teams? And how I mean, is this an all time great era? Is this a dynasty kind of thing? And how how, how do you make those comparisons? Yeah, I think. If we put aside everything we've said about finding ways around the rules, which probably shouldn't, but for the our purposes, let's do that. I think that it's the best five, six year stretch in the history of soccer, I would say. So Jeez. I guess people would disagree because they haven't won the Champions League yet. That's kind of the one thing that's missing. Um, but the Champions League is, the knockout rounds in the Champions League, are, it's maximum seven games. Um, and with soccer, seven games is not really enough to tell you anything, <laughs> I don't think. So that, that's the one thing that's missing. But in terms of pure points winning, they have, I think they're they're on pace to have uh, it'll be four of the six highest point totals in league history. And the other two will be Liverpool, who won the league in the one season where Manchester City didn't win it and then had the highest point total with the second place team in their history mm -hmm. of the league. So I think just in terms of raw points, they have the Premier League record with 100 um, and then have pretty much all of the next closest totals after that. So raw points, they're incredible. And this season, it's, they're going to be heavy favorites to win the Champions League. So I think they win the Champions League. It's going to be really hard to argue that this isn't, you know, one of the three best, if not the best stretches in soccer history. And how do you kind of balance in that kind of calculation or evaluation sort of Champions League performance versus Premier League performance? Because, you know, I mean, like I look at the list of Champions League and, of course, Real Madrid, you know, is, has has way more recent Champions League. Something that's like something crazy, like seven out of the last ten or something like that. But, of course, Real Madrid, I guess you would maybe argue that Real Madrid faces less competition to get to the Champions League. So it's more of an automatic yep. entry or something like that. But they've obviously had success at at the Champions League level, though there's randomness there. So how do you how do you compare something like, you know, what what, um you know, what Man City's been able to do within the Premier League, which is probably the top league in the world versus what, you know, this kind of little extra turn where Real Madrid's success in this little extra tournament. That's at least supposed to be among the winners of all the leagues. Yeah, Real Madrid are like the 
the bane of the existence of any soccer analyst and also like the most interesting thing in the sport where they constantly they're like the one team that seems to have some kind of have figured out some kind of way to consistently bang out results in the in the champions league in a way that they are unable to do on a consistent basis over a 38 game season um that said they just played this season um and manchester city um beat them 5-1 on aggregate right. most recent game beat them 4-0 <laughs> um, at the Etihad in, in Manchester and it's, it's kind of being viewed as one of the more dominant performances in Champions League Champions League history so I, I'm always going to just wait in the 38 game season more especially in the Premier League where it is the teams are very good and very competitive and the lower the lower teams in the Premier League are so much harder to play against than the lower down teams in La Liga where Real Madrid is um, uh-huh. so I'm always going to wait that and one of the interesting things is that uh, Manchester City had been knocked out of the Champions League during this run by Premier League teams three separate times. So they're knocked, they were knocked out by Liverpool, they were knocked out by Tottenham, and then they lost the final to Chelsea. So that creates this whole other, like, those are teams that they're completely dominating at home, beating at home, and then nice. they just happened to lose to them in the Champions League. So that creates another kind of, that almost makes me more appreciative of City than if they were losing to teams from outside of England, I guess. Yep. So, Ryan, could you give our listeners here a sense? I could imagine two ways in which a team could be, you know, all time great. One could be let's let's just make up a number. Let's say there's 10 dimensions on which soccer teams are evaluated. They could be average on five and so great on five that makes them great. Or they could just be like an eight or nine on all dimensions, which also makes them outlying in some statistical sense. Can you give us a sense of Man City? Like, are they just so good at a few certain things and okay at others? Or are they just very good, but not really excellent at all? of them? Yeah. So the way, the kind of macro way I d- describe City, you know, there tends to be a, there was manager Rafa Benitez said that he, he calls soccer tactics he calls it the short blanket problem where you have this blanket and you can only cover so much of your body. So it's like, if you want to take the blanket and make yourself a good attacking team, your defense is going to, the higher up you push the blanket, the more uncovered your feet are going to be and the worse your defense is going to be. Um, and then you can do the opposite, right? You can sort of play very, keep your players back, play conservatively, but that's going to hamstring your attack. Manchester city have basically figured out a way to just uh, have a full body length blanket, I guess. Um, <laughs> they're, you know, you tend to see these teams that create a ton of chances and push up and play really aggressively and keep the ball in the attacking third. They tend to give up a lot of high quality chances. They suppress the number of chances, but they give up a lot, a handful of high quality chances because they don't have that many bodies back because they're trying to keep the ball in the attacking third. City, basically, they create a ton of high quality chances and then they only concede a small amount of low value chances, which is kind of like something I previously thought was basically impossible to do um, in soccer and so you know they've figured it out and I think this season so what 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 they had been doing they started playing without a center forward so they would basically play with like you could say it's an extra midfielder so that meant you had 11 players who were very comfortable on the ball and could interchange in space and it allowed them to keep the ball and also like work the defense in a way because all their players were, it was much more unpredictable because all their players could kind of play in different roles. So they kind of attacked by being so good on the ball and not losing it. But since they had so many creative players, they were also able to create these openings um, and be efficient with the openings. So then this season, they added Erling Holland, who's a center forward, 
essentially like he's the if you want to make the argument that like america would win the world cup if our best athletes played soccer erling holland would be the one example i would i would concede to you of proof of this he's basically he's a six two gigantic strong guy who basically just gets into the penalty area faster than the defenders do and just lives on the top of the six yard box but he doesn't touch the ball ever basically he just scores goals is barely involved in build up play at all so that was a very different um it was a departure from the way that they've been playing and dominating but now this season that allowed manchester city to they can be a little less aggressive in terms of where they're positioning their players and um you know how far they're pushing everyone up but then they have this gigantic dude essentially who they can just lob the ball up to <laughs> when the other team pushes forward and creates all this space so it's just i don't they're I don't want to say they're a perfect team because you know, there's no such thing, but I think having him, they, they've added, you know, they used to be this like beautiful, beautifully, delicately balanced machine and they still have a lot of those players, but then they just have this like battering ram also at the top of it who hasn't made the team, you know, you could have thought that he would, he might uh, make the system vulnerable in some ways, right. By adding this guy that doesn't touch the ball, but it hasn't, hasn't happened at all. So let me ask, let me just channel Shane Jensen here for a second, because Shane has asked this question, but in different sports, I think for the last four or five weeks, what would be the most extreme the probability would be? So Man City plays the number two team. Like, are we talking 70-30 here? Like how extreme can soccer probabilities get with how good a team is, whether it's the betting line or just what the experts might say? And I apologize, Shane, but I think you've asked that question of different sports, You've asked it for hockey. You've asked it for, we've even talked about it for tennis, golf. I'm just wondering, Ryan, no, how you think it is. Yeah. It's, a fa- it's a great way to compare between sports, I think. Yes. So I think I have a good concrete example. So Manchester City is playing Inter Milan in the final of the Champions League. And the Champions League final is just one game at a neutral field. And home field advantage is pretty, pretty important in soccer still. Um, Inter Milan, I think they're in fourth in Italy now, but they, they're kind of one of those classic teams. They have like the underlying numbers of a, of the best team in Italy, but they're in fourth. So uh, let's say they're the second best team in Italy. Um, and the last time I looked at the odds, Manchester City is minus 500 to win the game, um, <laughs> which, you know, what, I don't know what that comes out to exactly, but Inter Milan, I think, outworks. Out, well, that, ha- so it's that the a- final. So uh, that's, I guess. Oh, so there can't be a draw. Okay. Yeah, there's no. Um, so I think someone described it to me that they're they're more likely to win than you are to convert a penalty kick. I believe if you do the that's about eighty five percent minus five. Yeah, and penalties are seventy five percent, which is um, kind of an absurd way to look at it. And this is Inter Milan, who I think at worst you could say they're uh, the fifteenth best team in the world. We'll say that's like that's the low range of where I would put them. Okay. So you that's know you get to the bottom of the Premier League, playing in in Manchester, you know you're getting significantly higher than that okay so by the way where is that game and when is that game match i should say uh the game is in istanbul um or at least theoretically will be in istanbul i think um they put someone else forget who maybe lisbon on standby because of the of elections in turkey but yes it's in istanbul and i believe it's uh when, when is the final it's uh Sorry, I should know this off the top of my head. Well, this is going to be a good way for us to watch Man June City. 10th, Saturday. June, 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 10th. June 10th. Okay, so we're just a couple of weeks away. Good good chance to watch. I mean, people have been talking about Holland for a couple of years now, and the way you describe him um, is super interesting. 
it, there, there's a whole other conversation we have about understanding him and what makes him so good. And especially uh, how, how is he differently valued when he's surrounded by the kinds of people that he's surrounded at at Man City versus how he'd be valued at a kind of a, a, another team, even a very good team, but not Man City as a team. But we're going to have to save that one because of time. Um, Ryan, thank you for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, um, opening our eyes a little bit about what's going on in soccer right now. Um, appreciate what uh, what you're doing, and we're always interested in hearing about it. Love coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Ryan O'Hanlon, staff writer at ESPN, author of a fantastic book on soccer. Fantastic book, period, happens to be on soccer. Net Gains, Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. That's Ryan, and I'm sure we'll talk to him again down the road. All right, guys, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second half, the third quarter of this week's show, another interview segment. Delighted to bring to you a fun topic, an interesting topic, a new topic, hopefully one that we're going to be hearing more about for a long time. But we're talking about Commonwealth new venture by Brian Dockstader and Chase Chamberlain. We're lucky to have Brian on the show. They are a sports tech micro share community, sports tech micro share community. You might just puzzle through what you think that means. Again, the venture is called Commonwealth. You can look it up. You can get the app now. If you want a piece of the action, you want to own an athlete, especially a horse, you might jump into it. Brian, thanks for making time for us. Appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Brian is, again, one of the two co-founders of Commonwealth, and they've just come through a pretty remarkable week. This thing has been years in the building. There's a terrific story, I think, in the athletic in the last week or so coming out of the Kentucky Derby. And um, the thing's been years in the building that has really blossomed this spring, a horse that they have dozens of investors for. They built this investment model a horse that they owned won the Kentucky Derby. Ran in the Preakness yesterday, or Saturday, ran in the Preakness this past weekend, finished third there. So there'll be no triple crown, but only you can only feel bad about that, you know, in comparison to what you could have been. After the Kentucky Derby, like everything's, that's as good as you could hope for, really. And these guys, Brian's sitting down with us just after returning from the Preakness and just after what he called the craziest two weeks of his life. Brian, congrats on all that. Congrats on a wildly successful venture and let us understand better what you're doing. Cause it seems like an interesting, a fun model, an interesting model. There's going to be some analytics in here somewhere, but first let's just understand what is Commonwealth. Yeah. So thanks again for, for the congratulations on the K- Kentucky Derby. And I really have to apologize for my voice. I haven't had a voice for two weeks since we won, uh, but Commonwealth, you mentioned micro shares. That's what the racing industry calls it. Uh, Cause shares have been a thing in, in racing for a while, but the technology community calls it fractionalization. And so we are uh, a technology platform that fractionalizes sports assets and sports opportunities. I mean, I say that to think very broadly. Uh, we started in horse racing uh, to much success. Um, we had the highest earning racehorse in the world last year, Country Grammar. Uh, we won the Dubai World Cup. We had the favorite in the Belmont, We the People. 
uh, he came in fourth, but we had the favorite. Uh, now, of course, we hit the ground running this year uh, with Mage winning the Kentucky Derby, which is still hard to say out loud. Um, and so what we do is we come in on a percentage of a horse. And in the case of Mage, it was 25%. And then we wrap a single asset entity around it. And then we send it to the SEC. They give us approval and we conduct what is legally called a mini IPO within our app. We sell shares, equity shares that are the exact same equity that all the other partners have. So you, if there's any earnings, whether it's on the track, breeding, whatever it is, you share in to however many shares that you buy. Um, the only difference would be they're non-voting. You essentially assign your voting and management rights to Commonwealth. We're the manager. But other than that, uh, if you show up at the track, you get all kinds of access. We had 100 people at the Kentucky Derby. Churchill Downs told us we had the most people ever in the winner's circle in the history of the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> Some of these people only spent 50 bucks. Could you imagine? For $50, you go to the track and, you know, Fortunately, we won. Not everybody wins, but fortunately, we won. And they, they got to go in the winner's circle. So we have a photo that is very it's a cherished thing of mine now with 125 people in there. And we like to say you could have bet a million dollars on Mage and you couldn't get in that winner's circle. But for just 50 bucks, you have a chance to get in that winner's right. circle of Commonwealth. Right. So, right. you know, a lot of people get, get centered around the shares, the financial platform. And of course, that's critical to what we do. It's the mechanism that allows what we do. But uh, it's really about building a, a community of sports fans across the country. We call it Commonwealth Nation. Um, you know, we had 100 people at the track. We had 1,000 to 1,500 watching at racing uh, uh, watch parties across the country. Uh, people from all walks of life, uh, all ages. It's a ton of fun. And, and that's really what you walk away from. Like even with the Preakness, we came in third and there's that moment right after the race that you're disappointed. Uh, and then an hour later, you know, you realize you're going to remember the day. You're going to be remember being there with friends, making friends, meeting new people. So it's a really dynamic thing we're doing. We're having a ton of fun. Um, and we throw events everywhere. I mean, pretty much monthly or more often now we've got horses racing. So um, it, it's it's become a pretty, pretty fun thing to be a part of. And then we've launched golf recently. So we're taking it to more athletes and and we're thinking about sports teams. There's there's a lot to digest. There is a lot to digest. There's lots of questions here. And on the on I mean, one super enthusiastic about the model in general and super enthusiastic about innovation, like inner innovation in ownership in sports is long needed. And so more power to you. Yeah. There are lots of questions. So well, let's get to the golf later because it feels very different to buy ownership in a, an, a human being's future as opposed to buying ownership of a horse. So let's stay with the horses for a moment. Um, you, you're talking about the, 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 the motivations here being not just financial. So a person can come in and participate in a way and, and literally like participate in the ownership yeah. of the animal. Um, and that's, that's neat. Um, and, and, and the article, the background they gave on you sounds like that really was a big part of your motivation, but there is this, I mean, it is an IPO and there is a financial interest here. Absolutely. Talk to us a little bit about where, you know, what that looks like from a, from an investment perspective, the, obviously the mage investment has done terrifically well. So I, oh, the yes. most recently we're seeing the $50, Ownership is the value of something like seven fifty or something crazy like that. Do I have that right? Fifty to seven fifty. Uh, yeah, we've now got two of them, so that number might have been country grammar because those investors on fifty bucks are at around seven eight hundred plus the uh -huh. equity value. Uh, uh -huh. Mage, 
they're at about 130 in racing earnings on a $50 share. And mm -hmm. we haven't released any stallion deal details yet because they're not official. Uh, but if and when we do announce that, it will be hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a $50 share. It will be very lucrative. So, so it feels like it feels like one of these low probably, you know, you guys have hit some real winners right out of the yeah. box, but otherwise I would normally think of this as being pretty low probability, but low probability of a, a relatively high payoff if it yes. does hit. And that's a profile yeah. that um, individual investors tend to enjoy. And then you're going to say, well, on top of that, you're going to have some ownership benefits. And yeah. some part of this is about the experience. It's not just the investment piece of it. Adi's trying to jump in here. I just want to get a little bit of background information. So you talked about the two horses that we all know about. Um, how about how many horses are, can you, have you sold shares in? We've sold shares in 17 horses now. I think seven of them have won races. Uh, probably four of them have been sold at a loss. The rest of them were either holding our own or in the case of three or four of them have been phenomenal successes, uh, which is a, a pretty strong hit rate. So if we put in $50 in all 17, how would that do? You'd probably be a double to triple at this point. We've returned, uh, we've raised about 1.5 million. And when we distribute the Kentucky Derby earnings, we will we'll have returned a little over 2 million. Um, and that does not include the stallion deal, which will be millions. So it might even be three to four X. And by the way, that's what we tell everybody. Like we, we say, pick a stock number and put it into all of them. Then if you have a feeling or if, the, if you have a feeling about a horse or if the horse races in your neighborhood, then like maybe go in a little more on that to, you know, to have a little bit more stake. But I tell people, everybody, even if it's 50 bucks, we don't care. We put it at $50 for that reason. Like we want everybody to be able to get involved and we put updates in the app. So you get weekly trainer updates, behind the scenes access. We do race um, analysis, pre-race, post-race analysis. So you get a really good inside track. And it's really about having the action, right? I mean, you know, having horses racing regularly and getting a lot of updates and stuff. And so we have some people that'll go $2,000 on a horse. And the next horse, they do zero. The next five horses, they do zero. And they pick wrong. And they're like so bummed they didn't get in the other ones. And it's like, I would have told you to put $500 across four horses for $2,000 rather than 2000 into one. You know, horse racing is not the place you want to put all your eggs into one basket. Of course not, Brian, but I want to ask another. So at what point in the, in the horse's kind of career, if you will, do you make it eligible to invest in? At the one-year-old stage? Have they already been racing? Are there two-year-olds or where, where in, the, in the cycle? It's, it's all over the place. It depends. We've offered yearlings. That's one year old before they've raced. Uh, we typically, our sweet spot is two year olds pre-raced. So we actually just bought a horse minutes before coming on with you guys. We bought a $700,000 Colt at the Timonium sale, which is going on right now. It's like the Preakness sale basically. Um, so that horse will turn around to the SCC and call it a month or two. He'll probably race in, let's say, I mean, we don't know yet. We just bought him, but let's say July, August. So we'll get, we'll get his offering out before he races his first race. That's the sweet spot. We buy in the two-year-old sales in the spring, sell them through the summer. They race late summer into the fall. And then, you know, from there, the journey begins. We've so Brian, without, oh, sorry, Brian, without giving away any secret sauce, like, do you guys have a big team of data scientists that are doing forecasting for you, whether it's for horses or, you know, whatever you happen to be investing in? Yeah, not just yet. I come from the data analytics background. So one of the companies that I built previously to Commonwealth is called Playhaven. There's a mobile marketing platform for app developers that we had in 500 million devices. We were in 80% of the top thousand phones at one point. 
and we had just gobs and gobs of data you can't even imagine. Um, so that's a little bit of my world, but for now, I mean, we're not buying at the scale yet that I think the data analysis really impacts. So really our, our secret sauce is, it's funny, I always say horse racing is a people business. And so we're connected with a lot of the best buying partnerships uh, in horse racing. We do a lot of back checking. We talk to a lot of different people about, you know, their history and how they have bought and how they've sold. Um, and so we have a lot of great bloodstock agents and of course, Windstar in our corner and a number of others. And so what we do is they go out and they buy a lot of their horses and then we're sort of picking from their short list. Uh, and my co-founder Chase is a lifelong horseman. And so, you know, we actually put hands on horse and we actually look at them, talk to the trainers. You know, there's actually a lot of scouting, if you will. You know, we're kind of still in the scouting days of Moneyball. But there are some interesting groups, and particularly in Lexington, that are doing some pretty deep pedigree analysis that we're in talks with. And as we start to ramp up our buying, you know, we're doing like five to 10 horses a quarter right now. And we want to get that to more like 50, 60 a year. And so as you start to get to that level, it does start to start to matter when you start to scale it up. So uh, we have some interesting partnerships, actually a guy that was at Preakness and Derby uh, with us. Um, he's a big data science guy and he wants to talk about how to start, uh, to using, using the data. And there's actually a surprisingly amount of, of publicly available information, both purse earnings, stallion fees, breeding earnings. Um, there's all these advanced metrics like true nicks and things like that, that put pedigree, uh, crossovers together and they give you scores and things like that. So there's going to be interesting ways for us to cross-reference and kind of create our own money ball version of trying to do this. So we have a regular guest on our show, Kentucky Derby Week, who is a bloodstock agent and a, a quant. He's a, he, he wandered over from the financial services world decades ago and now is a true horse guy, but definitely bringing quantitative methods to that neck of the woods. And um, one of the things that he's imparted on us over the years is skepticism about pedigree. Not that it doesn't matter, but that it's overvalued. Um, and it's such a Probably. salient dimension that it's so easy to overvalue it. This is for what it's worth, one of the things that we believe we know about the horse world at this point. Yeah, I, I like that narrative. I actually think, to be honest, a lot of people are throwing darts. Um, and I think it, it often comes down to the individual, the, the horse. Actually, the horse we just bought is, is a good example of that. He doesn't have a huge pedigree. We went to a fairly large number on him uh, because some people around us believe that, that he's a real freak of a physical and he ran a time. So what's cool about the two-year-old sales is they actually, it's kind of like the NFL combine. They actually run and they record a time. So as yearlings, uh -huh. you're just looking at pedigree and how they walk. They've never had a saddle on them. So you're really making a guess. Now you get good value because there's more risk. But um, this horse, this colt that we just purchased ran a 10-second 10, 10 flat um, eighth of a mile, which is, that's blitzing. So Okay. Okay. So, so Brian, let me ask you a question. Since we are sort of a business show too, I'll let, let me ask you a business question. Um, how, since let's imagine Commonwealth continues to do well, let's even say you answered Adi's question, 2X, 3X returns. How sustainable is this model where assuming these horses are on the open market, everyone's like, well, whatever Commonwealth is interested in, let's just bid it up. And like, so how sustainable is this business model of finding diamonds in the rough? 
Well, the good news is nobody knows that we're bidding. You bid through agents. And so uh, agents represent a lot of different partners. So we will be on the ticket for this horse today, but only after it's bought. So there are some horses we buy that we don't we say don't even put our name on the ticket. You just put your name as the agent and then we'll take possession of the horse afterward. And so it's quite sustainable. I mean, it's competitive. Don't get me wrong. It's hard. And we are not, under no disillusionment that we think we can just keep this rate up forever. There's going to be lean years. There's going to be great years. You see this with the best farms out there. Even Windstar, they had a lean year this past year. They've had other years where they seem to not miss. But uh, getting back to, I think we mentioned about the the handful that that pay off and the low probabilities. One of the light bulb moments for me early on with this company was the, the basically the use of power law applied to horse racing and athletes in general. I mentioned I come from the VC world a bit, kind of the corporate strategy world. And part of the strategy there is, you know, these VCs write 50 to 100 checks a year. They want two to five of those companies to work like a grand slam. Then they want to hit five to 10 doubles, a handful of singles, and they hope those pay for all of the rest. And I think as we start to scale up, that will bear out for us as well. If we've got 100 horses racing, the math is all, is basically on our side that we will have horses in grade one. I mean, shoot, at 15 horses, we're winning grade one races. Grade one is the highest level in the sport. Kentucky Derby, Breeders' Cup, those are all called grade ones. And so, you know, we're at 17 horses. I think 13 of them are racing at the moment. Um, they're all in various stages of development. But so if you were to triple and quadruple that, even if you were to discount our performance so far, but quadruple, quintuple our stable size, you know, the odds that we're going to have horses at these top level races is like it's all, it's a virtual certainty across time. And so and they always say you just got to have a horse in the race. I mean, that's really it's true in horse racing that, you know, you just want to be there. And it's a crapshoot if you can win or not. But just being there is is the accomplishment. So and I think that'll apply to golf. I think it'll apply to athletes. I think it'll apply to a lot of things. And if you lower the entry point down to 50 bucks like we have. You're letting people, I call it choose your own adventure. You're letting people pick a number that they'll invest over and over and over again, and they won't care to lose. And then, and then from there, it flips to the experience side of, of the house. And so I always say it's our job to make you forget that you've even invested money. You know, if you come, I mean, for 50 bucks, even $500, if you come to the Preakness and have a whole day with us, we had a hundred people there, there's drinks flowing, there's great times, you know, and you come in third. Not exactly the result we wanted, but from that day forward, you're thinking, I would have paid $500 just to do this, let alone also have equity in a horse that's going to continue to run. So, you know, it's our job to make the experience and the fun so compelling. And then, and then again, have that entry point dialed into a spot that it can fit for you. Some people, their entry point is $5,000 in every single horse because that's how they roll. Some people, yeah. it's 50 bucks. And so, um, so Brian, it's, good, it's pretty clearly it's pretty clearly an innovative um, ownership model and it's super, it's, it's, it's neat. It's, it's new in that way. And to, to broaden access like that is, is really, really neat. There's a, there, it feels, again, I'm just speaking, you know, this is, this is us kicking around. This is my first reaction. It feels a little bit like another way of, it's like, it's a little bit like the legalization of gambling. Um, yeah. People are happy. You know, one of the, one of the ideas in, in the popularization of gambling is that, you know, they, people don't care about being sharp. They want, they want to play. They want the entertainment. Yeah. They yeah. want that that skewness in their distributions. And this has some of that feeling as well. But then an open question for you is, you know, can you become, and you're also saying, look, we're just going to have action on the track. 
we have a horse in the race. And it's like, as long as we got that, we're like delivering the goods and who knows what's going to happen. That's wonderful as far as it goes. But then the question is like, can you be more than that? And by what means are you going to be more than that? Like, are you actually training horses in a way, developing horses in a way that make them more competitive? And that feels like an entirely different adventure, right? That's That's orthogonal to all the rest of this. Can you step into the horse world and compete in, in the way you train and develop horses, that's very different from having this super clever innovation and in ownership, right? Yeah, it is different. And I would say, I don't know that that's our intention. I mean, even the biggest owners in, in horse racing, they sit on top of the existing trainers, right? Like somebody goes and buys a million dollar horse, that horse gets delivered to the trainer. It doesn't get delivered to the owner. Um, we are trying some interesting things. Um, we have a, uh, a pending partnership I don't want to say the name, uh, but it's uh, with a very well-known company that has, um, what would it be? I guess compression and uh, I'm trying to say it without giving it away. Um, Physical, therapeutic uh, consumer products that we think could apply to horses and help them recover. Uh, And so we're talking to them about a partnership where all of our horses get to use some of their products and trainers will start using them to you know, help repair their muscles and, you know, uh, basically massage them and and things like that. And so, uh, we have things like there's, um, what's, uh, (laughs) I'm just coming uh, up with a guess, Brian. I have no (laughs) idea, of course, (laughs) not that one. Um, and there's a couple, uh, outfits out there that are having sensors put into the bridle of horses. So you can monitor their heart rate. You can monitor, um, all kinds of, of kind of, uh, biological, KPIs, so to speak, especially at night. That's actually when a lot of the trainers are, are most, they, they think is the most um, intel is actually happening. You know, there's the, the heart rate while they're running. Yes, that's pretty identifiable. But what's happening when they're recovering? Most of horse racing and getting them fit is about recovering after they yeah. run. Right. Um, and so we are, we are thinking about those things. It's all fairly early days, yeah. uh, but you know, it's a, it's a couple hundred year old industry that is stuck in their ways in a lot of ways. And so uh, we're trying to be the fresh face to thinking about new things. Terrific. Well, we're, we're, we're going to hope that you do keep wandering in that direction. It's often the outsiders. It's usually the, the outsiders who are super innovative around these analytics and technology. And um, that does feel like an opportunity. Um, before we let you go, we want to hear about these other sports and especially the, the, the wrinkles that in, inevitably come up when you start talking about buying ownership in, in human beings or human being careers anyway. Uh-huh. And um, you're talking about a couple, I think you mentioned a couple of NCAA golfers are in yep. the sites. So how does it work when we're talking about a, a, a golfer, for example? Yeah. So with all athletes, it will be an income share agreement because clearly you can't own a human being. And so um, we are funding multiple seasons. We're, we're targeting coming out of college or early professional, kind of the beginning of their career arcs. And so in the case of these first two players, we're funding three seasons of $75,000 a year for uh, basically a categories of touring expenses, travel, lodging, caddy these coaching, all the thing, you know, we have a line for health insurance, right? We're trying to think about this holistically. Um, and in exchange for that, we're getting a six year income share agreement for 30% of their earnings. In the out years, it's actually six years, uh, three years of 30%, years four, five, and six is 2015, 10. So it kind of tapers at the end. Yep. Um, and then we will package that together. 
Um, we put a little fee on top of it. We do the same thing as I mentioned with racehorses. We run it through the SEC, we do an IPO, and then people can invest. And as that player makes money and the and Commonwealth earns its share, the distributions go down to the to the investor, the backers, as we call them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's um, it, it's needed in golf. I mean, in individual sports, we'll probably go to tennis third because you don't have a team to cover your expenses. You don't get a signing bonus. You know, you're, you're on the hook for all these expenses and, and it is expensive. I mean, it's two to $3,000 an event or more to travel to all these places. Um, it's very speculative. Brian, a couple, a couple of questions. What's the relation between this type of deal and what an equipment manufacturer would usually do for endorsement? And what kinds of, um, um, uh, what level of play are you talking about? Guys coming out of college rarely go straight onto the PGA. So what other, are you interested in other tours, the Corn Ferry Tour? What What yeah. do you aim? Yeah, so they're developmental players. So both of our guys have full status on PGA Tour Canada. We're targeting like all Americans, all conference, division one, you know, people that are coming out of their collegiate careers with a, a pretty serious resume, like Cooper Dossie was a Walker Cupper, Palmer Cupper. In uh -huh. golf, these are these are basically the Ryder Cups of the amateur game. They're you know, very high high honors, um, and so so yeah, we're targeting developmental players. Um, and I I lost your other question. What was the early question? Uh, what tours does that mean that these guys will be playing on typically? Oh yeah, the, so PGA Tour Canada full status. They start up next month, and they've both Monday qualified, which is uh, on the Monday of every event. Um, they do a qualifier and they, and you can get into corn Ferry. They've Monday qualified twice. Joey played in a PGA tour event earlier this year. So it's all mm -hmm. about that developmental stage, uh, when the capital is needed the most. And also, you know, I liken it to like getting involved in a band before they go big, you know, that's when you can tug at the heartstrings and get to know somebody. Um, and so it, it's, it's interesting. It's a bit more dynamic than a horse is, you know, these people have stories, <laughs> yeah. they have stories to tell, they're going to put updates in the app and it's going to be them talking about what they're working on, you know, what things went well, what things didn't go well. You have a chance to play with them, get to meet them. We're talking about doing dinners, you know, and so it's it's a bit more dynamic. I mean, we love horse racing. There's nothing in the world like horse racing, but I'm personally excited about athletes. I'm I'm a big golfer. I'm a scratch player, lifelong competitive player. A um, bunch of my friends have tried to raise money in golf. There's a lot of predatory deals out there. The guys with the money ask for a lot. They'll get, they'll say $50,000 for 10 years at 50%. These are completely onerous terms. Okay. And so one of my missions is to make it so that no kid ever has to take a predatory deal ever again. Because we're going to be posting all of our deals publicly. We are trying to be the most transparent company in the world. All of our horse deals are, public, are posted publicly. It's all on the internet and the SEC. We're, we're posting all of our athlete deals. So even if a kid doesn't sign with us, he could pull down one of our, our agreements and go to his you know potential backers, private backers on his own and say, hey, these are market terms. We should be raising something that looks right. like this. Right. So I think this all needs to happen out in the open. And really, you know, we've got a bunch of player friendly terms like buyout provisions, payment recaps. All of our appearances are by request only. Um, oh, that's what you, you asked about. How does it differ from from endorsement deals? So. Our, our income share doesn't touch any off course earnings. So the endorsement deals are theirs to keep. Um, and, uh, and they don't, the typical, you know, your Titleists, your Nikes, they don't take a share of on course. Um, okay. So that actually fits pretty well because the agents, they all, they take their cut on the off course stuff. And so the agents love us because to them, we're going to be paying the expenses to give their players, you know, a longer runway to try to make it work. And so, if they have a longer runway to make it work and then it works, 
then they have now they have an athlete that they can go sell to the big brands and, and potentially right. make their cuts. So it's a symbiotic relationship with the agents. So um, one of the things you're telling us, Brian, is that some version of this happens and has happened for like, yes. the history of golf. Basically, it's like yes. the, the famous stories about the or like the classic stories about the you know the country club guy who yep. you know ponies up to you know give this guy a year on the tour or whatever. And I yep. guess that would be helpful for the stories just to understand where the money typically comes from for these golfers to make a go. It's their dream. You know, they don't know yeah. that they can do it. It's, it's their dream to give it a shot. And so someone has to support them. Yeah. It's usually, it's probably usually family money or someone's yep. going to dead and, um, or someone's going to back them in some way. And so this idea that you can come in and do it in a transparent way and a non-predatory way, but you know, you, I'm sure you've thought about this model, but the other place where this has been most prominent or at least highest profile is big league advance and Michael Schwimmer's deal in baseball, which got yes. a lot of attention early on and frankly often felt predatory, at least from the outside, it felt predatory for the guys come in and offer these minor leaguers a lot more money than they're making, which is hard to turn down, but for a big yeah. chunk of future earnings. It's a neat model and to and to do it with, uh, with uh, some kind of ethical guidelines would seem like an important part of it. So I hope you guys keep that. And it sounds like you are keeping that prominent. Transparency goes a long way, obviously. Um, but there's also all these analytics, Brian. I mean, my gosh, I know you probably, you know, um, it would be so uncertain, but, you know, forecasting these golfers' careers, there's like a whole world of analytics there, at least potentially. And then for the investment, the investor side to have some sense of what is the distribution of right. here. Um, there's a lot of, and golf analytics has gotten real sophisticated, as you know in oh, the yeah. last whatever 10 years um it's a fun little world to get you know again you need the analytics staff brian we're, we're going to sit here and just preach to you on the virtue of data on both yeah. the horse side and the golf side i mean if you built out a staff you would have um to pair with this neat ownership innovation model um maybe yeah. an edge on the we're, analytics absolutely we're headed there as i mentioned i mean i i have a data analytics mind it's kind of where i start most of my just assessment of things we're still just four people you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very proud to say in the crazy heights of the of the capital raises of 2020 and 2021, um, we didn't go for the mega valuation, mega rounds. Um, and so we're still very lean and mean. Uh, we are headed into another fundraise and we will start to staff up. Things have changed since the Kentucky Derby. We had 10,000 people sign up. I mean, it's our inboxes are are full of, of inbound requests right now. So yeah. we are headed towards staffing up. And I, I think data analytics and just, you know, statistics and all of that, I think is, is a big part of that, especially as you go to additional sports. I mean, the whole business is going to start to get more complex and more dynamic. And so uh, right. that will definitely be on our radar. And there's a lot of, I mean, sports analytics in general has come a long way in the last, I mean, really since Moneyball uh, in the last 10, 15 years. Yep. And so we'll, we'll, we'll be seeking out partnerships. I mentioned in horse racing, there's a handful of folks in Lexington working on that. Um, and then there's that, uh, I forget the conference up in Boston um, that I know some folks that go to every year. So <laughs> I'll likely pound the pavement at one of those and start to talk about what we're up to and, and bring someone in the fold. So I'll probably start with a partnership, somebody to lay it over kind of what we're doing and then start bringing people in house. But it's a, it's a fun thing to think about. Uh, and I, I love scouting golfers. I mean, I look at the mini tour events every single week. We've got sheets, you know, it's like kind of lightweight uh, data analysis, but it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's certainly better than, than looking at data on mobile apps. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, listen, um, it's it's uh, great, great fun what you're doing uh, and love the ambition and the scope of what you're talking about. So we hope to hear more from you down the road. But again, congratulations on some really neat innovation and then some early successes at the highest level. Just fantastic. <laughs> thank you for making, I know your inbox is full. Thank you for making time for us today. Yes, thank you guys. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Brian Dockstater. Brian is a co-founder of Commonwealth, a sports tech micro share community that started started in horses, but they're thinking more broadly than that. They've got some golfers now. If you want to jump in, own a piece of the action in a very real sense, you can track down Commonwealth. Thank you, Brian, for making time. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the fourth and final quarter of Wharton Moneyball, just off the line with Brian Dockstader, the co-founder of Commonwealth, a, a, a new little way to sell ownership into sports. Pretty interesting. Um, lot, brand new. No telling what's going to happen with that. It's fun to hear about it into horse racing initially big opening uh victory with kentucky derby and now they're talking about golf and going to go from there tennis it sounds like maybe in their horizon next um gentlemen at the end of q1 we were talking nba and we didn't get out of the east which is not surprising given this crowd usually in baseball but happened to be in basketball this time shane had something to say shane the westerner the most western of any of us had something to say about the NBA. Well, it was more of a question for Eric, I guess. You know, does Denver go against your long-held principle that you can't have have the best player of your team be the center? And is it because they're better constructed around their center than, say, the Sixers are or the Knicks were back in, 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 you know, the 90s? Or is it that, you know, that particular center that the Nuggets have is just so exceptional that he, he, he breaks the rule? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only thing I would say, obviously, I saw you put that in the rundown, so I was thinking about it. Um, the only thing Jokic does that um, other a lot of other centers don't do, the only one I would put in that category might be Giannis, is that he brings the ball up the court, actually, probably about a third of the time. So this is my point. The point is your best player can be your center if that center has the ball in his hands before five seconds left on the shot clock at the end of the game. Because again, all you got to do with the Sixers or some other team that their best players are Patrick Ewing of the old days is you press the guards, make them take nine to 10 seconds from the shot clock, double team the guy when he has the ball. Now there's seven seconds left in the shot clock and you can only rotate it so far around the, the basket to actually get to the weak side where the double team comes from. And that's always my concern with the best playing being your center. So two things about Jokic. Number one, he actually can um, bring the ball up the court. And he does quite a bit in the latter stage of the game. Second is Shane, the one thing I would say about him of any big man I've seen maybe in the last 20, 25 years, he's an extraordinary passer. As a matter of fact, I would say that's the most unique part of his game. Similar to the question we asked, you know, I asked Ryan uh, uh, O'Hanlon earlier on in the show was, I think Jokic is good on a number of dimensions, but what he's exceptional at is a passer. And so that, I think, makes it different. But you're right. He's an exception. He's definitely their best player, and he's their center, but he's also a lot of their ball handler. 
And I guess he's kind of unique as a playmaker for a center, or at least, you know, he's not the typical center in terms of his playmaking ability, both passing and shooting. Yeah, what's interesting play. about those games is that, you know, this is where it's going to be one of those things. They may well beat the Lakers tonight, and it'll be 4 nothing. But if we remember game one, the Lakers were down by 20-something. With 50 seconds left, LeBron had a shot to tie the game. Wide open three, missed it. Uh, game two, the Lakers were up with five minutes left. Uh, outscored again. The Lakers obviously were up big in game three. This I'm not saying Denver's not the better team. They're the better team. But this could be a 4 nothing victory where you look back at it and you say, wow, a couple like, of shots. Lakers had, the Lakers had to lead like for 90% of their like 4 nothing, so like and it got swept 4-0 or something like that. Yeah, that's all I'm pointing out yeah. is that the the final week, as a matter of fact, this is Cade's famous, Cade says this all the time. We, we get too outcome-oriented. We don't look at what happened during the games. And I think what's clear is that uh, Jamal Murray and Jokic and Michael Porter and their other role players have played better in the key moments. And if you look at the Lakers, they've gotten, you know, what happened to, you know, besides um, Reeves, what happened to all the other role players that were playing well in the other series? These guys have produced nothing. And so that's it. The Lakers have three guys playing well, and Denver's got seven or eight. Well, speaking of outcome orientation, every game in the NHL conference yeah. so far has gone to overtime. Which no, I mean, it has so, to be as knife edge as it gets, right? Yeah, no, and I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, we've already sort of, uh, you have to be cautious about trying to form any narrative in the NHL playoffs because things can change very quickly. And I mean, honestly, what's a, I mean, we can basically agree that overtime is a coin flip, right? So, mm-hmm. it, you, you know, it's kind of like having every single, you know, we're talking now about obviously, Florida having a 2-0 lead on Carolina. We're talking about Vegas having a 2-0 lead on Daryl Stars, but that could have easily, you know, I mean, easily been reversed, right? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, the NHL certainly we're getting yet another reminder about the kind of inherent randomness in in the outcome, as well as you know, even being able to judge which teams are the, you know, are on our kind of, you know, like what the what their actual probability is going into a series. So Shane, if 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 those two series, let's pretend they weren't. But let's pretend that before those series start, just for easy easiness for our listeners, those series were 50-50. You wouldn't particularly update anything, given that it's 2 nothing all over time games. And maybe you'd update a little bit, but but it's not like you're, well, you're, you're, ass- your assessment of the strengths is that much no, different. No, yeah, yeah. I would obviously update the series winning probabilities because they're up to game. You know, that right, I agree. Right, but, 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 you know, for the next game, you know, if I'm simulating, if I'm kind of doing this on a game-by-game simulation, I don't think I would change sort of the team ability parameters based on those mm-hmm. kind of the fact that they have a lead in the series. You know, I mean, you, you could argue maybe there's a little bit of a suggestion there, of maybe sort of a pretty, un, you know, unexpectedly, you know, deviant matchup or like maybe there's some kind of thing you signal there, but no, I would not update like the game to game kind of team strengths based on what's going on so far. I just want to point out the obvious thing that we've got an eight seed Miami heat running through the Western finals in the NBA and an eight seed Florida Panthers running through from Miami in the NHL from Miami. So um, fun little similarities. Let me just ask Shane a quick question. I was thinking about is being up like, so um, Miami went into Boston in, in the NBA and won the first two games. Obviously that's huge in the NBA when you win the first two on the road. How about in hockey? Like, I assume it's worth less than basketball because one of the two teams, right. Won the first two on the road. Isn't that true? Yeah, no, that, uh yes yeah yeah florida 
I mean, Florida's basically, you know, I mean, Florida's always on the road in this playoffs. They're the eighth seed themselves, right? So, yeah, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily, like, you know, I mean, I think it is definitely less than basketball. Um, it, it confers, obviously, kind of an advantage, but it is less than basketball. And I mean, I, can't, I guess I don't have the data on that, but, I, you know, as we kind of, like, obviously in basketball, we're talking about this, these series being down 3-0, and we've kind of observed that, like, no team has ever come back from it has happened in and recently it, it's happened three four times i think at least three times three or four and, alone, and three alone in, in answers hockey. the question yeah that i mean that gives a good indication question. right exactly i just want before we leave hockey i want to note that the leafs fired one of our favorite general managers kyle dubas and that means that we are going to return to being a toronto maple leaf hating organization we're going to, we're going to go back to our true colors so it's our more natural state it's our more natural state <laughs> So we'll wait till uh, Dubas gets a job somewhere else. But there's lots of other good, fun teams to pull for. Um, one other sport before we go to our regularly scheduled Major League Baseball. On the way, let's stop at women's softball. The NCAAs are underway. The, I mean, if you talk to anybody who watches any of the, the action, everyone agrees. It's a lot of fun. The women's softball is one of these sports that feels categorically different than men's baseball it's 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 a smaller field it's it's higher scoring it's fast acting and we're watching and we need to keep paying some attention to the fact despite the fact that it's oklahoma university of oklahoma that we've got this real dynasty in women's softball right now the sooners are two-time champs they are the number one seed going into this tournament they're through the regionals and now they're into the super regionals which means that there's 16 teams in 18 in eight different super regionals playing two out of three to get to the to the final eight and the final eight that's Omaha for uh, on the on the men's side but they're in the super regionals now the regionals were played over the weekend 13 of the 16 top seeds those top seeds hosted those regionals one UCLA was the most prominent loss the number two seed in the whole country lost got knocked out so the, the, the stiffest competition OU had just got knocked out in the regionals but they're playing two for three to advance to the World Series. Now, guys, tournament design question, all right? Tension, careful, don't answer too quickly. I want your honest thoughts. This is a very unusual st structure, and it's the same structure for men's NCAA as well, the baseball. They, Just to be clear, getting, it alternates. It goes 14 double elation, two of three, then another 14 double elation, then two yeah, of three? That's the structure. So, okay. so remember how it begins at the end. They're both going to the World Series where eight teams get there. They they exist in two 14 pods. They play a double, both sides play double elimination tournament to advance one team to the finals. And then they play two out of three for the finals. So that's what they end up with in the World Series. They do the same thing to get to those eight. Right. They play, they play 16 regionals, which are, they play, I'm sorry, eight regionals, which are four teams. No, no. They play 16 regionals, four teams. It's a 64 team tournament, 16 regionals, each of which are four teams, double elimination tournament to advance to the super regionals. And then they play two out of three in the super regional. So it's this weird structure where they play, they, they basically it's double elimination in every round. It's just that it's four team double elimination, then two team double elimination, then four team double elimination, then two team double right. elimination. It's, it's so I mean, I. What's going on? Yeah, so think about it for a moment and think, here's my question. Like, why would you do that? And then number two, what are the consequences of doing that? What's different as a result of that? Yeah, so and I guess it, it, it might, I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll propose no insight, but maybe a straw man that we can think about is, or a question, a straw man question, why wouldn't you just 
do like a home and away round robin to knock all those four teams down to two. Mm-hmm. Cause that's kind of what they do. That's kind of what they do in the group stage at like, say the world think, cup or something. I think like that, that takes us to one of the considerations here that we don't talk about enough whenever we have our tournament design discussions. And that is logistics and practicality. Yeah. So yeah. one is you gotta, you gotta move through this at some pace and you're talking about more games. You gotta play more games that way, Shane. And so they're going to knock, they're going to drop some games. They're going to get through this without everybody having to play everybody else. I think then you. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, even if you, if you had a round Robin where everybody played everybody else, that would be three games. Correct. Like I was actually saying home and away, but you could just do one game. For example, that would be three games. If it was round Robin. Among four teams. No, you've got to play. That's three games for one team and then two games for another team. And then a third game. That's that's six. Yeah. Three games per team but some of them overlap yeah. i think it's six unique games yeah where i think in this double elimination format we're going to play fewer unique games. okay all right so there's i mean I, I think there's two dimensions you could evaluate any tournament design on right one is what fraction of the time does the let's assume for, does the higher ranked team actually win it right and then that's one dimension and then the other dimension would be fairness right and so in some sense what does fairness mean? What is fairness? Well, I was going to define it, at least my definition, but I don't know if it is, which is um, I happen to be assigned to this super regional of four versus somebody else. And I just happen to get, if, I, if it's not done that way, I happen to get a bad matchup with incomplete data. And so you know, that's not fair to me. And what's more fair is I'd love to be able to play all other teams, but that's not practical. So I got I to gotta blend that. So putting it in a group of four, having them all play each other, it's, it's feasible, it's less expensive because they're in a pod, and it makes it so that I'm not as screwed if I happen to get a random <laughs> assignment or something to someone that's really strong. Now, going back to the four-team double elimination again in the third hold round, on, hold on, hold on, that hold on, seems stay, a little strange, but I'm staying with the first round. Yeah, let's save that for a second because I love your analysis. I think that seems it's a, it's a blend of... Um, it, it gives you, it adds some fairness to what would otherwise be a little too much random on who I get paired with. If it's just Correct. Uh, the, 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 the individual pairwise. Um, the, the other piece that they get here is there's a satisfaction of playing a two out of three to announce the champion, right? So the one game or even a double elimination, it, well, one double elimination is really unsatisfying to decide the champion because you sometimes have these guys who arrive with no losses and they play a team that has one loss, and then you, it may or may not be the championship game. And the and College World Series has gone through this before, and so I think that reason alone, they want to go to a game that is going to be the championship game, but one is not enough, and so they go for these two for two out of three. Oh, I so think the a, ends of this, the ends of this four-round thing make a lot of sense to me. It's the middle two, it's the switching back between the yeah. two to three to the four double elimination. That one, I, I don't have a strong sense of, except you could argue the same fairness thing again of who goes to the World Series. Yeah, but, it, yeah, it feels like it's either the practicality of scheduling, or it's making the World Series is a big deal, and so we're gonna make we're gonna go through the kind of rigorous qualifying that we're gonna use at the World Series just exactly. to get to the World Series. Anyway, interesting, distinct way of building things, and they're gonna see you'll see the same thing in the men's side. They're about a week behind the women's. All right, let's take it up to professional baseball, gentlemen. Give us an update on what's going on around Major League Baseball. I did hear from my friend and our colleague, our friend and colleague, Joe Simmons, diehard Orioles fan, 
who tries not to care about the Orioles. It's been a well-earned philosophy in recent years. It's not been rewarding to care about the Orioles. This year, he's having a hard time not caring. Because yeah, they're amazing. As of yesterday, they you know early in the season, they, they supposedly weren't playing anybody. But they just swept the Jays in Toronto, I believe. And there's something like 15 games above 500 this early in the season. So they're in your division, guys. They're in your division. What should we make of the of the AL East? Well, it's a mad, it's it's rough. It's rough. It's brutal, right? It's a brutal division, and it's uh, it's uh, something that you really have to think about. Considering you got five teams sitting in one side of the of the axis here, all of them over five hundred. In fact, right now they all order from from uh, from east to to central, from one basically to to ten. The thing about the the, the Rays now they've dropped substantially. And we almost figured that had to happen, right? They went off and won the first 12 games, and now they've played, you know, normally. I checked Fangraphs, and Fangraphs doesn't see the doesn't believe in the Orioles. I mean, so yeah, they won a lot of games, but they still think of them as a sub 500 team going forward. And this is, of course, the essential rub right now. I mean, before the season began, we didn't think that much of the of the Orioles. Do we now that we they've had a good solid run? Do we really want to revise it that much? And I think you probably have to shrink them back a lot strong, more strongly than we would than we would our hearts would want to if you're an Oriole fan. It's worth it's worth mentioning though that that kind of projection for the rest of the season is two things confounded together, right? It's it's whatever they kind of actually believe the Orioles Orioles true kind of record is at, which might still believe it's below 500. Plus the strength, you know, schedules are not at all balanced yet. That's right. And so it could be that they actually have a, you know, their model has updated the Orioles are above 500 team, but just because of the teams that, you know, just because of the kind of schedule they've played so far, they wouldn't necessarily predict that uh, for the rest of the season. That's right. Right. So I think Fangraph has them at at either the eighth or ninth best team in the, in the majors. That's reasonable. Look, If they play 500 ball the rest of the way, they end up near 90 wins. And now the question is, Is could this be a year where a team, especially with the, what is it, three wild cards, whatever it is, could somebody win 90 and not make the playoffs at all? It could happen given how many, I mean, you talked about this last week, Adi, given how many losses these, a couple of these teams like the Royals and the Tigers are, you know, soaking up, or not the Tigers, the Royals and the A's, yes. that you could easily get 90 wins may not get you there. Yeah, especially that like within the division, you're not beating up on each other as much, right? So, and I mean, like the divisions are just really, especially in the AL, the divisions are super balanced right now. I mean, you already talked, Adi already mentioned the kind of that you you can just kind of rank order the AL East and the AL Central (laughs) and just kind of keep going with it, which is unusual. But also, I just sort of saw that the AL East currently has a 225 positive 225 run differential. Most of the other divisions in baseball are near zero. AL Central is minus 161. Unbelievable. Yeah. So right now, for example, Shane, your team, the Red Sox, they're on pace to win 90 games. Yeah. And they're one and a half games out of the last wild card spot as we yeah. sit here right now. So <laughs> if the season ended, they, you know, if it goes, goes linearly, they're going to win 90 and not make the playoffs. Yeah. Well, um, it's, My it's, prediction it's, is they win less than ninety, not make the playoffs. Yeah, <laughs> if, if, I, if I had, if I was one out of two, guy, one out of two, it would ain't bad. Thing, Shane, but, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think so, in, in talking about these kind of win totals, and I do want to kind of just point out one thing that's kind of impressive about the Dod. Like, yeah, I saw another kind of interesting stat that somebody tabulated basically the Dodgers' cumulative record over the last decade, like since twenty fourteen, and they're at over they're they're at over a hundred win pace. Like over that, like they average out to 100 wins over the last decade. 
Unbelievable. We always say you got to shrink. There's no way, you know, you got to shrink. You, you can't, you would never bet any particular team would get over 100 wins. It wins, you got to shrink it down. But actually, betting at the Dodgers at 100 wins, you'd be right on the average over the last 10 years. That's extraordinary. Right? right? How, how much, I mean, we're That's talking shocking. about the impact of. Of organization. They're 867 and five. I mean, I didn't. So this calculation I kind of copied off the internet. But yeah, they're since 2014, they've been at a 0.619 pace. So that's that's 100. Yeah. So we have to credit the organization at that point, right? I mean, it's not even one player, it's not a dominant player. There's Shane's rubbing his fingers with the money. Well, it's, it's management, you know? plus they've also had top We've had payroll over that time. But we've had other teams spend similar amounts of money, have we not? I mean, they're at the oh, top. Oh, even more. Yeah, no, no, no. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's, it doesn't get you, – you know, it's kind of – it's always worth – you know, if you're going to speculate why is this team so consistently good, I think money has to enter into that conversation. But it's not like money right. guarantees that. Agreed. Right. Right. Well, we were talking in Q1 about the impact of organizations. And this seems like – I mean, you're right to put money. That's a big, huge factor. But we've seen – Teams like the yep. Rays or the Indians do it without money. And we've seen teams with money not do it. And so a team that does it at that pace for that long a stretch. Yeah, and I mean, 10 years 10 of years? baseball means an entirely turned up. There, there can't, uh, there's, I, I bet you there's not almost a single player that kind of overlaps that entire Kershaw? Season. Maybe Kershaw, yeah. I mean, but baseball teams do turn over in a way that like, you know, ten, like a team 10 years, you know, the Yankees yeah. 10 years ago probably has like one or two players from the team now, right? For sure. Okay. Good, solid analysis. Appreciate it. All right, gentlemen, that's been Q4 and that's been two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball with the whole crew, Shane, Adi, Eric, and Cade. Appreciate y'all joining. Appreciate everything Matty Dats does, boss man, and Dion Simpkins making this thing happen. Many thanks to all of them. Many thanks to all of you. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.